Hello, and welcome to this special edition of the Thames and Hudson podcast. In this audio trilogy, archaeologist and author David Miles invites us to explore the prehistoric monuments and landscapes around his home in rural France. For more information on David Miles's books, head to our website, thamesandhudson.com. Standing here, right on the threshold between the outside world, and then it's a narrow corridor, so you've got to crouch down to get in. Here we are, inside the house. The place would be warm in winter. Probably had a tremendous smell of smoke and sweat. People got used to living in these cosy conditions. I'm archaeologist David Miles. I've worked on archaeological projects across the world, and now I live in a rural part of southern France, the Cévennes. I'm interested in how aspects of human experience today can be understood by seeing how they arose out of our deep past. In these three episodes, I'm exploring the French countryside around my home to examine three themes that still shape us, in the first episode, we explored the land. Then we gazed up at the sky. In this last episode, we looked closer to home. <laughs> it's April in the Cévennes. Cherry and crabapple blossom fill the woods and new leaves are starting to turn the sere landscape green again. Good. Shall I bring a map? Yep. Right, OK. Well, I've got a map. I'll put it in my rucksack. It's a sunny Sunday afternoon and my wife Gwyn and I are walking high up on a limestone ridge about half an hour from our house. Yes, that's the crabapple that starts with a red bud but it goes into a white flower. Ah, so as we go across the clearing, uh, we've come into an area of gorse now, and, it, and that's starting to come out as a bright yellow flower. And it's mixed in with the cherries, so it's, it's quite pretty. Lovely though it is, we're not just up on this rocky tableland looking at nature. Bonjour. Bonjour. We're actually in search of a house, a very special house. Oui. 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 The houses we're looking for are some of the oldest surviving fixed dwellings in the whole of France. They're from the very late Neolithic, if we can get to find them. <laughs> the Neolithic is the time when a house could become something much more than a structure to shelter in. It became home. Home is settling down. It's where we store stuff. It's a tamed place that also makes us think of the wildness beyond. Home is the nest we mustn't foul. Home is our little corner, and at the same time, home is increasingly how we see our frail planet.
The hunter-gatherers, places in the landscape associated with their mythology and ancestry, were regarded as home. To most people today, however, a home implies fixedness. A home also suggests strong feelings attached to a place, perhaps related to family. Deciding when in prehistory these homemaking factors emerged, however, has been the source of debate. To the 20th century archaeologist Vera Gordon Child, the domestication of crops and animals in the Neolithic created the ingredients for the fixed house and for our idea of home. Nowadays, many archaeologists would say it's more complicated than that, that home building began before farming and the Neolithic. Take the site of Lepensky Vir in Serbia. It lies at a wide stretch of the river Danube, whose waters, as the last ice age ended, became rich in fish. Attracted by these resources, hunter-gatherers increasingly started to settle at this spot along the Danube. The floors and hearths they built were of a kind of cement, which has endured. The layouts of the Lepensky Vir houses take a complex trapezoidal form that seems to echo the shape of a nearby mountain. Some contain human burials, and were perhaps a sort of family shrine. Developing over time, these houses had clearly accrued symbolic value. Fast forward to the Neolithic, where we can see similar activities going on, but in many more places, and involving much larger numbers of people. The ancient tells of the Near East are mounds, beginning in the Neolithic, and formed by the succession of settlements built one on top of another over many centuries. These tells were crowded places where sedentary peoples were living cheek by jowl. At one of these sites, Platia Magula in northern Greece, a clay model of a house was unearthed. It was probably buried there as a kind of ritual at the house's foundation. Inside are an oven and human figures, perhaps representing ancestors. While unusual sites like Lepensky Vir show a fascinating insight into home creation before farming, during the Neolithic, the practice of settling down became widespread. Farming, originating from the Near East, moved across Turkey into Greece and then westwards by two main routes, across the Mediterranean and following river valleys such as the Danube. The fertile Lers soils of Central Europe proved especially attractive to the early farmers who created substantial villages of longhouses. It was the Greek word for house and home that gives us our word for economy. The word domestic came from the Latin for house, domus. Our domestication of plants and crops in the Neolithic also domesticated us. The time flowering. Smell it as well. It's lovely. The house complex we're looking for on our Sunday afternoon walk in France was built long after Lepensky Via in the third millennium BC. So in the very late Neolithic, a community built their homes up here, perched at the top of a sheer cliff. It's quite a schlep. Oh, they've got lots of rosemary here. But worth it when you get to the top. Wow. 
standing on this uh, shockingly sickening precipice. <laughs> you can just imagine, can't you, the Neolithic children running around here six, 5,000 years ago <laughs> with a 500-foot drop outside the front door. And uh, Anyway, as we look off the cliff top, and, uh, back Just a few metres away from our lookout point are the ruins of the Neolithic village we've come to see. A handful of elongated houses, all tightly packed together. The smallest is about five metres long. In around 2300 BC, it likely contained a family of maybe four or five people. I should say that the village itself, don't get the impression it's sort of high walls and roofs. What we're looking at are the lower walls uh, that survive. And these are what in archaeological terms we call a dwarf wall. In other words, it's a low wall on which you build a house that's made out of timber or out of earth, dried earth, terpizé. The long house at the centre of the settlement is about 22 metres long. This may have housed as many as 20 people. It's got a central doorway on the lower side. You can see a gap in the wall. And then at the ends, they're rounded, apsidal, rounded ends, which is very characteristic of these houses of this period. French archaeologists call the communities that built these houses the Fontbouise culture, and this is named after the type site of Fontbouise, around 30 miles to the east of here. The Fontbouise people lived at the end of the Neolithic, the beginning of the Copper Age in France, when copper was used for the first time. We now know that there are many of these Fontbouise sites. For example, if we just turn and look slightly to the right, this we could see that the uh, limestone runs as a kind of ridge. And in the far distance, we can just see Nîmes, the big city of Nîmes. Now, all the way along that ridge, there are, in fact, quite a number of these settlements. And for the first time in Western Europe, they're also making metalwork out of copper because those mountains in the distance there are the source of copper. And uh, they're making things like daggers, pins, balls, beads. A lot of it's to do with decoration. And when they bury their dead, they seem to be very fond of putting metal beads on them. A few years ago, some of my colleagues at Oxford excavated a similar Fontbouise site near Nîmes. We were struck by how many objects were buried there. Because there's a big change that the Neolithic ushers in. The sheer quantity of stuff that these communities possessed. Because once you've settled down in a house, you don't need to worry so much about portability. You can start accruing objects, even fragile ones. You can store food, conserve it, and protect it from mice and rats. And the iconic object that did all that storing has filled our homes ever since. I've always liked pots. I was a conservator for um, 12 years um, in the Ashmolean Museum in Oxford. Gwyn and I have collected pots for years. Many are practical, jugs, plates, bowls, and others are clearly art objects. With their striking glazes and forms, the pots that line our home look very contemporary. It's an art piece by Julian Stair, and he's done scraffito on it, so it's got coloured lines which are very geometric, and the whole thing looks very modern. 
Modern though they are, I can't see them without also seeing their ancestors, the pots of prehistory that I've spent my lifetime studying. Some of the first pots originated in the remarkable Jomon culture of Japan, perhaps as early as 12,000 years ago. This was way before the invention of the potter's wheel. They were built up in layers from the base using coils of clay, sometimes patterned on the outside with the impressions of rope. Jomon pots long predate the Neolithic, but being heavy and fragile, did not take off in more mobile hunter-gatherer cultures where string bags or baskets would have been much more essential kit. It was in the Neolithic that pots flourished and in Northern Europe spread from the farming groups into neighbouring hunter-gatherer communities. Early pots have round bases to push into the ash or the dirt. It's only later that flat-bottomed pots are developed to stand on furniture. Many developed styles and decorations distinctive to specific communities. Prehistoric potters seemed as keen to forge a style, a recognisable brand, as modern potters do. The thing that makes it definitively a leech pot is the glaze he's used, which is this sort of slightly oatmeal mottled. That's good news for archaeologists trying to date and contextualise sites. The kind of pots stored and used in the house we've just seen up on the hill were highly decorated in simple geometric designs, coloured clays inlaid into grooves. Like modern potters, prehistoric ceramicists were moved by the same delight in colour, design and texture. And it's glazed on the outside with this yellow colour, which is very distinct. So pots are functional, yet they're also objects of beauty and can be of ritual significance. And whether ancient or modern, pots are also transmitters of identity and memory. This is one of Ray Finch's very early pots. This great big jug is one of the last pots he ever made. And um, it's something very nice about having the beginning and the end, if you see what I mean. <laughs> Like pots, a house has come to be more than the sum of its parts, more than stone, mud or thatch. Something intangible, even magical, abides in its walls. Not just a house, but a home. Sometimes we express the idea of home through the image of a hearth. We've lived in this house now for 22 years, so it uh, actually feels like home. Our home wasn't always a home. It's called Le Paille de la Devezette, the hay barn of the little meadow in local dialect. And if we go through this big wide door, this is where they brought the hay in. And once we're inside, you can see this huge space, which is where the hay was stacked right up to the ceiling. So the animals lived down One of our neighbours worked here as a boy and he remembers stacking the hay right up into the roof itself. It was the previous owners of this place who turned it into a house. When we moved in, we inserted a wood burner. We harvest the wood from our own land, fast-burning pseudo-acacia, ash, pine and slow-burning oak. A hearth for a home. 
In Lepensky Veer, that late Mesolithic site on the Danube, the hearths were placed at the back of the house. This seems to have been a special area, the area of the house in which burials were placed. In some houses, archaeologists found curiously shaped stones resembling fish-faced humans. The hearth and the home seemed imbued with some spirit related to protection, to river livelihood, ancestors. Neolithic homes must have been smoky, dark, musky. You get some sense of the atmosphere of a prehistoric home at a remarkable site about an hour's drive from my house. This site is known as Camboos. Like the settlement we saw on the hill, it's a Fombuis site from the third millennium BC. In fact, it's one of the biggest excavated Neolithic villages in France. We now know that the climate was damper when this village was inhabited, but it still sits in heavily wooded countryside, much as it would have 5,000 years ago. The excavations in the 1970s were difficult. The houses were a mass of collapsed stones. Locals had used part of the site as a quarry. It was difficult to collect reliable carbon-14 samples because much of the charcoal, which could be used as samples for dating, had fallen through the loose rubble and contaminated earlier layers. Entering the site is hard too. At this time of year, it's kept locked. But today, we're being given special access. Oh, here they are, here they are. Professor Luc Jallot of the Paul Valéry University in Montpellier and a specialist of the Fombuis period has just arrived with around 10 of his students. <laughs> Bonjour. Enchanté. Bonjour. C'est la première fois ici, Oui. As we enter, we see the foundations, and they're impressive. A great cluster of longhouses with curved ends, like boats moored alongside each other. At its peak, Professor Jallot tells us, 500 inhabitants lived here. They lived in around 40 houses, of which a dozen have been excavated. Very few villages of this era have the floor plan of the houses intact. There's the site of Scarabray in the Orkney Islands of Scotland. Very magnificent. And in the south of Spain too, but in France, this is the only one. We come to a cluster of houses all aligned to protect themselves from the prevailing northwesterly wind. Their walls are impressively thick, up to two meters of stone. Many prehistoric houses, once abandoned, were used as rubbish tips. But the house he's showing us now was occupied for a short time and crucially left undisturbed. So we can see how it was left. The placing of the pottery around the house the exact place where flint was worked, the fireplace. At the centre of the Camboose site is an entirely reconstructed house. It was built 40 years ago, carefully reproducing the composition of the existing houses. Its roof, made of reeds, needs replacing about every 15 years. It's not fallen down yet. We squeeze in through a tiny door, camels through the eye of the Neolithic needle. 
Je sais pas ce qu'ils ont. It's dim. Smelling of earth. Vegetation. One of the houses at Cambus is longer than the others. The sheepfold, where the sheep and goats were brought in for protection when needed. Imagine what this forest felt at night, back then. In this part of France, during the Neolithic, bears and aurochs, huge wild cattle, still roamed beyond the village. Much later, the Cévennes was famous for what became known as the Beast of Gévaudan, an animal that terrified the local population. In reality, this was a pair of wolves who killed at least 64 people, mainly small children, in the 1760s. Fear of wolves might be read as a fear of what prowls out there beyond the threshold. In the past 6,000 years, we have denatured much of Western Europe. The Neolithic home put up a barrier. A line was drawn between domesticity and nature. Our separation from nature has grown exponentially ever since. <laughs> Jackie Martin used to be a baker in our village. Now he's retired and doing what he likes best, hunting with his two brothers, Denis and Max. They started hunting at the age of 10. It was their father, Jackie explains, who gave them the hunting virus. Jackie hunts mainly for pleasure, but he's also keen to tell us that hunters, even in 2022, still police that ancient boundary between the wild and domestic. There are too many sangliers, he says, wild boar. A wild boar is not normally a threat to life, though French hunters themselves, on average, shoot eight people a year. But boars round here are crossing that ancient line that separated the world of the wild from domestic life around the home. The boar destroys crops and vines. They trample over gardens and they come into people's homes. At the Neolithic site of Chatelhuyuk in Turkey, wall paintings exalt the power of wild cattle, the wild aurochs. In one image, young men in leopard skins goad a bull. Chatelhuyuk is a Neolithic site. Sheep and goats had already been domesticated there, so it's as if the very act of being settled made the imagination dwell on the wild and the savage. It seems to be something hunters still feel today. When the boar arrives, the adrenaline pumps, the noise of it coming towards you from a few metres away in a fit of rage is awe-inspiring. Wildness is subdued and brought into the home, much like a hunter's trophy. Nature then could be tamed, but the wildness in the human heart, the wildness turned on fellow humans, not always. Just across the River Rhone, at Roy, a catch of a hundred skulls and fifty skeletons was found in a tomb. Embedded in many of the bones were flint arrowheads. 
Violence stalked the Fombuis world then. Many of the Fombuis sites were abandoned by 2000 BC. Why? Climate change, war, had the security of home become a danger through its very fixedness, filled with so many objects of value? Did they think it could only be temporary? Did they tell their children as they took a few belongings they'd come back one day when it was over? Refugees can't carry much, and while solid shelters can give them safety from, say, Russian shells, it cannot give them the objects that they had to leave behind. It's what Kai Erickson, the American sociologist, who's explored the plight of those forced to abandon homes after catastrophes, calls the furniture of the self. Things like photographs, objects of memory, the irreplaceable stuff of home. For millennia, people heated up clay balls then placed them in stews to raise the temperature to tepid. Not exactly appetizing. Then in about 6,500 BC, in Shatelhuyuk, in today's Turkey, Neolithic cooks transformed the kitchen, out with the old clay balls and in with thick-walled, mineral-tempered pots that didn't shatter on the fire. Thanks to that invention, home became a place of hot meals, of distinct, local, culinary delights. And I bless that invention every time I cook one of my favourite dishes, a dove or stew of wild boar. Jackie, the hunter, cooks his boar dough in a vast casserole that he keeps in his garage. It can hold 20 kilos of meat. Back at home, the lump of boar I'm cooking is somewhat more modest in size. It was a gift from my neighbour, Jeannot. It's pretty much of a bloody mess. But the meat is gorgeous, especially if you cook it for a long time. French cooks have all sorts of variations on the dough recipe. Jackie puts in a local sweet wine called Cartagena. I can't stand the stuff. I prefer good old red wine. Here we go. This wine has been grown in the Cévennes and selected from the most beautiful parcels of Syrah and Grenache. And a lot of garlic, 50 cloves. Here goes the wine. There we are. It's just about covered the boar now, and I estimate there's half a glass left for me. My home is also a home to many other creatures. Tawny owls, hibou in French, duet in the garden. Masonry bees hollow out a space in the granite wall above our back door. In the late summer, young house martins cling to that same wall. The adults flutter close by, exhorting their offspring back into the air. Africa is calling. Red starts and grey wagtails flash between the roof and the river. Green lizards scurry over the wall. Drop a few crumbs at tea time and the ants appear. Somehow I feel that ants rule this land. 
These animals have adapted to us and our homes. The technical term for these lodgers is commensals, which in Latin means sharing a table. In the course of the 20th century, as images of the Earth were beamed back from space, we started to appreciate the planet as home. Now, as bird, insect and wild mammal numbers crash, we could well take our fellow Earth dwellers into extinction with us. Alternatively, we could use the tremendous adaptability, experience and intelligence of the human race to do something about it. In these three episodes, we've reflected on land, sky and home. During the recording, as we wandered over the plateaus and valleys of the Cévennes, I have often felt that the domain of sky and land merged. The prehistoric stone circles clasp the land but talk to the sky. The dirt trackways of the transhumans carry the flocks skywards into the peaks. And between this complex interdependence of sky and land is this home of ours, so rich, so teeming and complex. And so vulnerable 